Truth is often stranger than fiction. And sometimes we say it's too good to be true. And I think that's a little bit behind Thomas in the Gospels when Thomas said, unless I see the holes in Jesus' hand and feet while sticking my finger in his side, I'm not going to believe. It's too good to be true. I don't know about you, but I've grown tired of our dreary gray clouds that have cried their tears continually on us this winter, except this morning when I went for a walk, it was snowing. I have said it seems it's raining cats and dogs. I've said that more last month, the month of January, than I've said my whole time in Great Grant County. The Detroit Free Press, my go-to paper growing up, published an article in November 2007. So I'm talking 17, 16 years ago. And I'm sure you can complete the sentence that appeared in the paper. Look, it's a bird. No, it's a plane. No, it's... But the article said, look, it's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's a cow. A couple from Westland, Michigan, near Detroit, were staying in Manson, Washington, to celebrate their one-year wedding anniversary. And a 600-pound cow fell 200 feet off a cliff onto their Buick minivan on Highway 150. Now, we should take comfort that it was on a Sunday, and this happened right after Sunday worship. Power of prayer. Jerry Eisenhart from the Chelan-Wenatchee area and owner of the Gold Lake Chelan Online News posted the story. And he couldn't resist comedic comments about the event like, the driver was utterly, not utterly, <laughs> confused by the event. And I have to say, of course he received criticism for cow insensitivity. He did. He got raked over the coals for his little innuendos. Well, this is the last Sunday before the Lenten season. Ash Wednesday is three days away. It's one of my favorite services. Ashes on the head in the form of the cross. Remember your death. Memento mori. Or more positively from a book I'm reading right now, we come and we ask questions like, what is worthy of your finitude? You only got this much time. What is worthy of your finitude and how you live your life? The Transfiguration is a bizarre story. And it marks Jesus turning his face toward Golgotha. And skeptics throughout history have said it's so bizarre that it must be a piece of fictional, mythic, creative writing. And yet Matthew in chapter 17, Mark in chapter 9, and Luke in chapter 9 record the event. And each place the event immediately after Peter's confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the Messiah. And then Peter chastising Jesus in two of the accounts for saying that the Messiah is destined to the cross. And Jesus calls Peter Satan and get behind me, Satan. Well, each of those three Gospels has Jesus teaching right after Peter's confession and rebuke. What does it profit the person? 
to gain the whole world but forfeit or lose their very self. We must take up our cross and follow Jesus. John in his gospel doesn't record the event of the transfiguration, only Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but he hints at it in the very beginning of his book, in the most famous verse probably in his book, not for God so loved the world, but the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son, what did God say from heaven, who came from the father full of grace and full of truth. And John saw the glory of Christ on the mountain. He heard, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then Peter writes in the second book of Peter, chapter 1, verse 16. He said, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories. We didn't follow deceptive stories, made up stories. When we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Right before this, Jesus says, you're going to see the kingdom come in its power. And we think, oh, he's talking about the second coming. No, he's talking about the transfiguration. The transfiguration is right on the heels of that. And they see the power of God come on Jesus. And then Peter keeps going. He says, he received honor and glory from the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. I'm well pleased with him. And we ourselves heard this voice. Who's the we? Peter, James, and John. That came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. That's the transfiguration. He's talking about that story. Well, flying cows crushing a car of an anniversary celebrating couple from my old Detroit stomping grounds, saved after morning worship in Manson, leaves me utterly spellbound. But the story of the transfiguration leaves me utterly spellbound. I think of W.H. Alden's For the Time Being, a Christmas oratorio. He has this wonderful sentence in that long poem, The real is what will strike you as really absurd. (laughs) The real is what will strike you as really absurd. The real will cause a shouting. Let's build a shelter for Elijah and Moses and you, Jesus. I mean, why does Peter shout that out? Gotta love Peter. He's just scared spitless. He, with James and John, is experiencing the unveiling of the person of Jesus Christ here on this mountain. I mean, we sing this. Christ by highest heaven adore, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Look, he's all there. All of God is right there, veiled in flesh, Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as men with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. The glory of God is present at the birth of Jesus. The shepherds are out in the field, out in the darkness, attempting to count their sheep without flashlight. And when out of nowhere, yet out of everywhere, the glory of the Lord shines around them. And just like Peter, James, and John, at the transfiguration, the shepherds are terrified. Terrified. They don't have words or language to articulate their experience. When we have these kinds of experiences, language folds in on itself. That's why we have poets and artists. 
What words do we use to describe standing on the maid of the mist underneath Niagara Falls or on the rim of the Grand Canyon? We try, but our words just are empty. They fall short. So let's not be too hard on Peter, who didn't know what to say, it tells us. He just didn't know what to say, but he still spoke. That's why we love Peter. When we experience the immediate invasion of the presence of God, our language and our words and our expressions disintegrate as they roll off our lips. This is God we're talking about, the one who made the universe, who's beyond the universe, who's immutable and infinite, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving. And we say those words and we still don't even get close to what they mean. Our metaphors point and help us comprehend some of what we say when we meet the word God, when we worship, but language poetry leaves us humbled before the revelation of God's person. I think of the Psalms. They help express the inexpressible vision of God. It's often in paradox. One of my favorite verses in the Psalms is Psalm 18:12. Here it is. Out of the brightness of his presence, clouds advance. Clouds and brightness. Out of the brightness of God's presence, clouds advance. Out of the brightness of Jesus' transfiguration, a cloud descends and covers him. God, in all of his glory, advanced toward us by taking on human flesh, and we could say he clouded himself. Out of the brightness of his presence, he clouded himself. His brightness becomes clouded by the flesh. Or in the Jewish mind, he wrapped himself, we used it in liturgy this morning, he wrapped himself in light as with a garment. At the transfiguration, a garment of flesh is pulled back for a moment and the brightness of God and his nature in Jesus explodes from his inner being. Light. Well, the word transfigured is the word, of course, metamorphosis. That's where we get the word metamorphosis. The caterpillar reveals its butterflyness. It undergoes a change of form. That's morphous. And the prefix, like in transfigured, it means a cross. So if we get in a plane in New York and we fly over to Europe, we have a transatlantic flight. There's a movement from one perspective to another. And we start seeing differently. At the transfiguration, we're supposed to start seeing differently. Jesus is transformed before the disciples so they can see what has been hidden from their eyes. What has been veiled is in his taking on humanity as deity is allowed just for a moment, just for a moment, to shine Jesus shine. And they don't know what to do. They don't know what to do. Melville wrote that famous book, Moby Dick. You should all go home and read the chapter. Just read the one chapter, The Whiteness of the Whale. It's a great chapter. It has wonderful expressions. It says, Whiteness refiningly enhances beauty as if imparting some special virtue of its own. I like that, but not as much as I like that we become injected with the fixed trance 
of whiteness. Carrie and I have visited the Wieserkirche in southern Germany a couple of times. You stand in this church and you experience the fixed trance of whiteness. It just makes you silent. Well, you, you stand in and you experience the fixed trance of whiteness with the disciples. Jesus' clothes are dirty from climbing up the mountain and it gives Peter, James, and John the fixed trance of whiteness when he's transfigured. At the birth of Jesus, he's dressed in rags. He's snuggled in poverty. You know, Carrie has been known to try to trash my workout clothes. She's even gotten to writing on them that it's time to let it go. Now, this is my favorite workout sweatshirt, this right here. And she has been talking to me for a long time about getting rid of this. But as you can see, it's just beautiful. And it's not going anywhere. Yes. And I wear it proudly in public. As a matter of fact, that's what Sarah saw me wearing when Carrie was walking way in front of me, and I was behind her, and I had that on, and she was thinking in her head, oh my gosh, look at this homeless man chasing this woman. <laughs> and, and the boys in the back seat said, hey, there's Mark and Carrie, and she realized that she was saying that about us. <laughs> but Jesus, I want you to know, Carrie has... There was one time, it was about six months ago, she took one of my workout shirts and she put it in the garbage and then threw out a bunch of food on top of it. And I saw the corner of it and I pulled it out and I rewashed it and bleached it and I still have it. It's great. It's an ongoing joke in our home. And it goes with being poor. I grew up poor. I had to tie my shoelaces when they broke because I, we didn't have money to buy shoelaces. And so you, you wore stuff until it literally fell off your body. Well, Jesus was wrapped in swaddling cloth. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, is veiled and wrapped in my workout clothes. Rags. And when you clean the car with rags or dust the furniture or wipe down the commode, do you ever think that you're hand, holding in your hand the clothes of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords when he came? Rags. What about when you check the oil on your car and wipe the dipstick clean? Do you ever think the rags wrap Jesus? At the transfiguration, Jesus' clothes reflect his inner being that is veiled in flesh. And they had just hiked up the mountain. Think of this. They hiked up the mountain. Now, we hiked a lot in Israel. And let me tell you, it was hot. You're not going to want to hear this, but my underwear was soaked. I sweat like a pig anyways. Carrie doesn't sweat. But in Israel, oh my gosh, she was dripping off of her face. Well, Peter, James, and John had hiked a mountain with Jesus, and they could have used some Old Spice. 
They're sweaty in their humanity. They've seen Jesus sit by a well in exhaustion and hunger, talking to a woman. They are seeing the humanity of Jesus in sweat and tired legs and a growling stomach. But all of that is negated by his inner glory bursting forth. His ragged clothes of poverty become dazzling white. There's not enough bleach in the world, it says in Mark's gospel, to make them whiter. So how much bleach could make them whiter? Well, not as much as is in the world. See how our language fails us? They're trying to get at it, and they can't. So they just take something and hopefully get your imagination going. Matthew and Mark, or Matthew and Luke, both tell us that his face radiated light. Think of Moses that was read for us this morning. He, he's with Jesus on the mountain in the transfiguration. Moses hikes up a mountain in Exodus 24, and he takes three named people with him. Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. Jesus takes three named people with him. Peter, James, and John. Moses moves along into the presence of the Lord for six days. Our passage opens up with six days later. A cloud covers the mountain and Moses enters it and we could say, out of the brightness of God's presence, a cloud advanced. And when Moses comes down from the mountain in Exodus 34, his face is blazing bright from being in God's presence. So he veils it, he covers it. And Matthew tells us that at the transfiguration, Jesus' face shone like the sun that we haven't seen in a very long time. So how do we know if we're spending time in God's presence? Maybe we think of Moses and his face shining. How do we know if we're in the presence of the transfigured Christ? We know by our very hearts and minds being transformed and transfigured, metamorphous from creepy caterpillars into beautiful fluttering and graceful butterflies. And we see that process happening. We may not be there. We may be in the transition. But it's happening. We start radiating the presence and person of Jesus Christ into other lives. It becomes our passion. We become convicted that we're not praying for our enemies. That's a good way to understand if you're those people that you know you have issues with. You're called to pray for them. Those who have hurt us deeply at the center of our being. And maybe it is not, maybe it isn't our not praying for our persecutors, but maybe it's that we're not even praying to have the courage to pray for our persecutors, for our enemies. We've got to start somewhere. Maybe money and possessions has tied, up, uh, tied us up, paralyzing our commitment to the values of the kingdom of God. He just, we, we, we need to hear what Jesus taught immediately prior to the transfiguration in every gospel. Because he said, what does it profit a person to gain all life has to offer while trashing their very selves? It was John who wrote in 1 John that he who claims to live in Jesus Christ must walk as Jesus did. He's telling us that no matter where we are in life, walking as Jesus did is to become more and more our passion. Paul would say, we all with unveiled faces, there's that veiling idea, contemplate the Lord's glory being transformed into his likeness and ever-creasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The Lord who is the Spirit. It goes together. Because we go deeper. 
and more profoundly at the transfiguration of Jesus. And it's something that we need to see that is central to the world and the way we need to understand the world. Mark tells us that a cloud appeared and overshadowed Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. The cloud covered them. The cloud hovered over them. If we go back into our, the narrative of our scriptures, we start at the beginning, and it starts, now the earth was formless and empty, and the Spirit hovered over the deep. Was over the deep. And when God speaks light into the darkness... Jesus is the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And God speaks in Genesis 1, and Jesus, the light of the world, goes into the darkness. God speaks Jesus into the darkness while the Spirit hovers, overshadowing and brooding over the dark waters. Angel Gabriel appears to Mary. It's all connected, the narrative of the Bible. He tells her she has found favor with God to bear Messiah. How can it be? She's never slept with a man. Ah, Mary, the Holy Spirit will hover over you, will overshadow you. The Spirit will brood over you, cover you, and the very darkness of your womb will contain the light of the world, who is God with us. Mary's womb veiled the glory of God. Jesus is overshadowed by the cloud on the mountain. Same word Gabriel uses. It's only one other place in the Bible where it's used. It's the same thought behind the creation story. And then there's the voice. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. And when the father speaks in the New Testament, he only speaks about his son. God says, this is my son. My spirit's overshadowing him. This is who God is. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is the center of the universe. The mystery at the center of all being is being unveiled at the transfiguration. Our God is three persons in the mystery of His being, and He is going to reveal His nature, being and character, in a very unimaginable way. And Peter doesn't get it, and the disciples don't get it. Peter's already been called Satan because he doesn't get it. So let me paraphrase C.S. Lewis here. God is love. People like to say things like that. God is love. It's true. People say this, but that means that God must be at least two persons before the creation. Before the world was made, God was not love. If God somehow is not two persons... What people are really saying in the statement, God is love, is we like to think in our culture because love is God. That's the way we're thinking. That our loving feelings and that the producing of human flourishing are to be treated with respect, great respect and applause. And there's nothing wrong with human flourishing and loving people. Maybe so, but that is not what Christ followers mean when we say God is love. And here I quote directly, we believe, Lewis directly, we believe that the living dynamic activity of love has been going on in God, in his person, forever, and has always been there. 
and it created everything else. That is the most important difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world. That at the center of God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God living eternally in a relationship, and that is the mystery. So how is God, as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, going to interact and reveal himself and show his nature and character to the world? Well, immediately after the transfiguration, our God turns themselves to the big three G's. The big three G's. Right at the, after the transfiguration. Gethsemane. Golgotha. And the grave. And he's going to reveal himself. He's going to say, this is who I am for you. At the cross, glory and suffering kiss. The glory of the transfiguration is a private affair. While the suffering is public. Jesus in the glory of the transfiguration, he's surrounded by the law and the prophets and the persons of Moses and Elijah. He's saying, this is all connected. It's all connected and everything's coming to fulfillment. And at the cross, he is surrounded by two, right? A thief on his right and a thief on his left. There's not enough bleach to make Jesus' garments whiter at the transfiguration. And at the cross, at the cross, his garments are stripped and his nakedness is unveiled to the world. Three male disciples witness the transfiguration, while three female followers observe the bareness of Calvary. The father speaks at the transfiguration and says, This is my son. I love this son of mine. And Matthew tells us that the centurion at Jesus' death proclaimed, Surely this man is the son of God. At the transfiguration, the question of Elijah is raised and Jesus makes it clear that John the Baptist is the Elijah to come. Matthew tells that some thought, Mark tells that some thought Jesus called for Elijah from the cross while they all waited to see if Elijah would come and rescue. And then Jesus breathed his last. And the glory of God is revealed in the suffering of Jesus, in the bloody humanity of Jesus. The Son of God, the Father with the Son, in the Spirit, lives love before the world in utter vulnerability and nakedness. That's who our God is for us. It doesn't say that God demonstrated His love for us in the resurrection. Paul says, God demonstrated His love for you and me in that Christ died for us. That's the gospel. And the transfiguration takes us all the way there. This isn't in my notes, so I'm going off the cuff here for a second. I was talking with Frank beforehand, and we were just, I, I was over in Everett and did a graveside for Hank yesterday and his family. And we were talking about funerals and memorials. And <clears throat> Millie and Kim, we talked about Todd's. <clears throat> but I'll never forget the time that I had gone to visit Todd, who had ALS, Millie's son, Kim's brother. And he couldn't talk. He couldn't move. Um, he'd fly land on his nose. He couldn't brush it off. And I'd been out there for about two hours that afternoon. And so I went back to the church, and I was working, 
and it was about 5.30, 6 o'clock, and I get a call from Martha, who was his caregiver, and he said, Todd wants you to come out again. And I said, I was just there, and I have church, and, and I said, oh, okay. So I called Carrie. I didn't go home for dinner. I went out to see Todd. And I'll never forget this. Todd and I communicated by raising eyebrows. He could raise his eyebrows. He could close his eyes. Eyebrows up was yes. Closing his eyes was no. Remember that, Millie? That's how we got to know what he wanted so he wouldn't be so mad at us. So you uh, would spell things out. A is the first letter of the first word A through M. Yes. A, B, C. He'd raise his eyebrows. Okay, you'd write C down. That's how you communicate. You'd spell out sentences. And this is what he told me. Without words, with his eyes. He had me spell out, tell me how much he loves me. Tell me how much Jesus loves me. Tell me how much God loves me. And then... I watched a, and I, I say this with all love and respect, a dead man sob in a corpse of a body. And I spent two hours with him just reading the gospel story. That's it. And he sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. The transfiguration, Jesus goes from his glory that's been veiled and it becomes veiled more and more and more till he gets to the cross. And when he gets to the cross, naked before the world, he shows us what God is like who God is, and it doesn't change. For you, oh, and let's not forget that at noon, at noon, for three hours, Mark tells us, the Spirit comes at the cross and hovers and overshadows in the darkness. The darkness descended. Just like on the mountain of the transfiguration, it came over the whole land Matthew 18 prays, out of the brightness of his presence, the clouds advance, and the clouds came, and darkness descended. And we begin the Lenten journey with Christ to the cross on Ash Wednesday. That's what it's about. It culminates in his unveiling his triune nature of love. It started at the transfiguration, and it's going all the way to the cross. And he's determined Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. May the Holy Spirit give us eyes to see more clearly the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ this Lent. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's pray.